Hi, welcome back to Let's Talk About Race, the podcast where we look at race issues in America and trying to have real conversations with differing perspectives. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Nazgul Gandnush, Senior Research Analyst at The Sentencing Project. Nazgul, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me, Cameron. So before we get started, you have a very academic perspective on a lot of the ways in which racial bias permeates the criminal justice system in America. Can you give us a quick background on your education and your work experience to date? Sure. So I went to graduate school at UCLA, and I did a PhD in sociology there. And it took me a while to figure out what exactly I would focus on, but in the end, what I did my dissertation on was people that were serving parole-eligible life sentences. And then in 2013 was when I finished that degree, and I started working at the Sensing Project, where I'm, where I'm at now. And as part of my role as a researcher there, I focused on issues like racial disparities and incarceration and throughout the criminal justice system. I look at reforms because I really like to be able to showcase where things are being done right so that um, police departments, um, prosecutors, defense attorneys, judges can look to the positive steps that their peers are taking around the country to address over-incarceration and racial disparities. So those are some of the areas that I've been focusing on. And as far as a quick primer on the sentencing project, what do they do? Sure. So we're a D.C.-based nonprofit. We've been around for over 30 years, and we engage in research and advocacy on criminal justice reform. So we connect directly with um, lawmakers. We connect directly with advocates and support the work that they're doing. We can help to connect uh, that world to the broader public, in particular by um, connecting with uh, reporters and media so that everyone's aware of what the latest research is in terms of what needs to be happening in the criminal justice system. Now, obviously, there have been nationwide protests since the killing of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, lots of other black Americans. One of the things that I've heard being chanted that you hear being said a lot is police are racist. Um, I'm curious for you, coming from an academic perspective, if there is actually an answer to that question. You know, are police racist? Is the police system racist? Sure. Uh, well, I would say that the short answer to that question is yes, and it depends on how you define racism. So some people think of racism as being overt. So, you know, these, these would be sort of the police officers that we hear about that are members of secret white supremacist groups. And they're definitely, you know, in the past year, so there's been some news coverage of that. And, and that's extremely troubling that there are people like that in the police force. And those are the most obvious bad apples to get rid of. But there's also a broader definition of racism that you can think of, which thinks, which would look at structural problems in policing and in the gaps in our society that we, we require policing to fill in. So, for example, problems of homelessness that disproportionately affect people of color. Why is it that we send police out to address that issue? Uh, problems of substance use disorder. Why is it that we're not thinking more seriously about a public health approach there, but also for uh, violent crime as well? Why don't we have more of a public health approach? Why is it that we're relying on this rather ineffective and really harsh and punitive response to the gaps in our society that contribute to the presence of violent crime? And then I would say the other aspect of um, racism and racial bias that occurs in policing is something that happens in every sector of our society. The research is very clear about implicit bias, that even if you're a person who says, you know, I'm a really progressive person and I support racial equality, there's no way that I would want to ever do anything that supports 
um, discrimination against people of color. If you look closely at your own work, you're likely to produce biased outcomes in your work despite the fact that you explicitly support racial equality. This is true with people who work in medicine, so with, for example, healthcare workers. This is true with people who work in education, so teachers. And it's also true with our police officers and people who work in criminal justice. We are, as a function of living in the society that we live in, we have biases that we carry, um, and that pertains to, in the criminal justice system, uh, assumptions about who is a criminal, um, who is likely to reoffend, and who is just caught up but should be given another chance and they'll clean their act up. That kind of calculation that has to get made in the criminal justice system is one that's very much affected by the race of the person under consideration. I'm curious, do you have any of those statistics or facts as far as substantiating bias in policing you know, for instance, if someone were a skeptic and wanted to say, I don't think there is systemic racial bias in policing, do you have facts that you point to to kind of prove that point? Sure. So first, what I would say to someone who says that is uh, a lot of times people who have the view that there's no bias in policing, what they will do is they will point to differences in crime rates. And they say that's what accounts for differences in police contact with people of color compared to whites. And the first thing that I would say is that there are differences in crime rates of the kinds of crimes that our criminal justice system handles. And in particular, this is true when you look at the most violent crimes. So, for example, if you look at homicide, there are higher rates of homicide victimization among African Americans in the United States compared to whites. So black Americans are more likely to be killed than white Americans. Homicide is what's considered an intraracial crime typically. People tend to kill other people of the same race as them. That means there are higher rates of homicide offending among African Americans in our society than among whites. So why is that? The reason for that is if you look at how our society is comprised, where is the wealth? Where are people concentrated geographically? Black Americans disproportionately experience uh, concentrated urban poverty. If you somehow flip the script and you had our inner cities populated by white Americans, you would have higher rates of homicide offending among whites. But if you look at the other end of the spectrum, uh, wh for example, if you look at drug offenses, um, there, that's where you see, and, and you see this with more generally with uh, lower level offenses, there are not there's not a significant difference between blacks and whites and how often these kinds of uh, offenses happen. So here's the most, one of the most trivial things that I think the criminal justice system directs its attention to is making arrests for marijuana possession. So if you look at how often people use marijuana, you see that between blacks and whites, there's almost no difference in reported rates of marijuana use. But the ACLU, for example, has done an analysis that's shown that police officers arrested black people for marijuana possession at 3.6 times the rate that they arrested whites for something that blacks and whites do at similar rates. So when you look at crime like that, then you see there's not a big difference in the underlying activity. You could point to some issues like, well, maybe it's more likely to happen outdoors for black Americans. Maybe that explains part of it, but it doesn't explain all of it. So to understand disparities in police enforcement for low-level offenses, that's where you really have to understand what is the police department's policy about where they're sending people to look 
are they sending people to look on university campuses or are they sending people to look in the adjoining neighborhood of the university for drugs? Where, so where, what's the departmental policy? I think that's really important to look at. And then secondly, what's happening in terms of the discretion of individual officers about who to stop, who to pull over, and who to search? Now, I've been doing some research on online forums to try and get police perspectives on everything. For instance, Reddit has a thread called Ask Law Enforcement Officer. But one of the things that I really read that stuck with me was this account. You know, he had a banner flare claiming he was a police officer. And he said, the view on racial profiling at my department is that it doesn't happen and it works. And I feel like to me, that's kind of indicative of a lot of the frustration that people are feeling around trying to deal with this problem is it's not always on paper, right? It's not always explicitly stated, but so many of us feel like we see it all the time. So for you, have you been able to find evidence that shows racial profiling occurs, even if it's not explicitly stated by the police? Oh, sure. So um, I have a couple of things to say about that. So, so one thing to notice is that over time, the dis disparities in how often police officers pull over black versus white drivers in particular has decreased over time. So it's not, things are not as bad as they used to be. However, if you look more closely at that data, you see a couple of different things. And so one thing that you would see if you look at that data is, uh, one, um, how often police officers pull over uh, white drivers for what are called traffic safety stops compared to how often they pull over drivers of color for investigatory stops. So basically, when police officers pull over drivers, um, if the driver is white, they're more likely to pull them over for a traffic safety stop. So this, is, this has to do with the way that the person is driving. This is sort of like a most obvious uh, police stop where the person's going 20 miles over the limit. Um, you know, there's a safety consideration to pulling that person over. On the other hand, with investigatory stops, and these are considered pretext stops, um, these are stops where people are being pulled over for how they look. So the police officer is pulling somebody over because they think that there's something criminal going on inside that car. So think about how likely it is that race affects that calculation of whether or not someone's engaged in criminal activity. So people of color are more likely to be pulled over for investigatory reasons. And these are the kinds of reasons where you see an officer explaining they, they pulled someone over because they were going a little too slow. They didn't change signals when they turn, when they changed lanes. Or they just give no reason at all. They just want to see what's up and they, and so they, they stop the driver. When you divide stops of drivers into traffic safety stops versus investigatory stops, that's where you see a big difference. Something else that you can see is when, uh, the radish officers search drivers and they're much more likely to search black drivers and drivers of color than white drivers and they search black drivers in particular at such a high rate that they have a lower uh, what's called a contraband hit rate typically among black drivers than white drivers so they're among the drivers that they search they're more likely to find drugs or weapons among white drivers than among black drivers because they search so many black drivers so that's, um, you know, so I think that's important to consider. In some jurisdictions, like for example in Connecticut, I know they've done this kind of analysis where I think it's really interesting to, to know about. It's called a veil of darkness analysis where researchers look at how often police pull people over by race in the daytime when the police officer can, is more likely to have a sense of the race of the driver compared to at night. 
So, for example, they might c compare um, uh, motor vehicle stops at 5 p.m. in February when it might be dark versus 5 p.m. in July. And what they see in those analyses sometimes is that police officers are more likely to pull over black drivers when they can see the driver in the summertime than in, in the wintertime when it's dark. So those are, that's, those are a couple other examples of, um, you know, where we can see clearly that racial bias of the individual officer is relevant in how often people are pulled over, why they're pulled over, and what happens after they're pulled over and whether they're searched. Do you think that there is a view among police that this is effective, um, that what they're doing works? Or do you think that this is just an extension of broader American culture and biases? Well, I, I, would, say that it's, I would say it's a little bit of both. So certainly anyone that lives in our society and is exposed to the kind of media that we're exposed to where... Um, you know, look at the evening news, look at the kind of crimes that are portrayed. There have been analyses that have done, been done also of some newspapers, for example, and the kind of, um, the rate at which crimes committed by people of color are depicted um, and overrepresented in combination with the rate at which white victimization is portrayed is overrepresented. So that leads white Americans to have an exaggerated sense of how much they're likely to be at risk of violent crime and to underappreciate how much black Americans are at risk of uh, victimization of violent crime. So that's sort of just part of what you would absorb within our society, just watching TV, reading newspapers. But within policing, I think there is a lot of um, reliance on gut feeling about what works. And, um, and sometimes what police officers will point to is they'll say, well, I'm not engaging in racial profiling, but it is the case that I do most of my work in a high-crime neighborhood, um, and that would make sense because this is a neighborhood that's disproportionately experiencing crime. This is a place where I'm called to more often to come and do my work. And so when you're, just, when you're overwhelmingly focusing on communities of color, neighborhoods of color, then you don't even need to be racially profiling as, as an act of discretion. That's just where you're sort of stationed and who you're going to be pulling over. So if your department has a stop and frisk policy and you're just going and you're stopping it a lot, as many people, you know, you're trying to kind of fill quotas that you might not acknowledge, but you're going to be stopping a lot of young people of color in those communities. And another point that some police officers and prosecutors make, which is correct, and it needs to be followed up uh, by, by police departments and by um, city leaders, is that as a result of this kind of policing, um, broken windows policing, where they're, where they're doing a lot of arrests for low-level offenses with the idea that that's going to tackle violent crime or stop and frisk or just a lot of traffic safety, traffic stops for people, what ends up happening is that they end up having very bad relationships with people in these communities. People in these communities feel over-policed for low-level offenses, and then when it comes to very serious crimes, when they experience that, these are not the officers that they want to cooperate with to help to investigate and help to prosecute these crimes. So police end up sort of shooting themselves in the foot when they are going after so many people for low-level offenses um, in high-crime neighborhoods, but also beyond, and then expect those people to cooperate with them and sometimes really jeopardize their own lives 
in the process of cooperating with the police. Um, and, so, and, and that expectation is an unfair one. And so then that's how you end up having a, a situation where police officers really struggle to solve homicide cases. Do you have any theories as to why or when this broken windows policing started? It seems like we're in this over-policed state in America. Has that always been the case, or is that something that's modern? Do you know where that comes from? So in the 1970s, early 70s, crime rates started to increase in the United States, um, and, um, and, that was, and that was something that... Um, Richard Nixon and later presidents tried to tie into and entangle with the civil rights movement and the protests happening at that time. And so a lot of um, local area cities would um, deploy police to try to uh, uh, clamp down on protests and, would, and, and then began to come up with very harsh policing policies were implemented, especially beginning in the 1980s, to try to crack down on, on crime rates because crime rates continued to climb in the 80s, and only by the 1990s, mid-90s, did they reach their peak levels, and they've been falling, rather, dramatically since the 1990s. So, um, what, as a result of that, anyone that has been in office or has had a leadership position in criminal justice since the 1990s tries, tries to take credit for that crime drop. But what's troubling about that claim that whatever we did in policing work, such as broken windows policing, which really took off in the 1990s, stop and frisk really took off around that time and continued in the 2000s. Um, There's been a lot of research that has carefully assessed, did these kinds of policing activities that dramatically increase police contact with uh, urban communities of color, especially, did they help to lower crime rates? And the answer is pretty clearly that they either know or a marginal contribution to the crime drop that we've experienced. And the same is true for incarceration, because the United States dramatically increased its incarceration levels by 700% from 1972 to 2009, and only recently has been scaling it back. And so the reason we know that is by detailed analyses that look at jurisdictions within the United States, see, well, the ones that were harsher in terms of policing or sentence prison sentencing, did they have a bigger crime drop? They did not. But we can also look at this more broadly and look at it internationally and see that the United States is among about two dozen countries that has experienced a dramatic crime drop. And so there's, there's just global patterns and demographics, economic situation, you know, many other factors that have contributed to the crime drop. And it's really myopic to point to any policing policy or any kind of ex increase in incarceration that we've done in the United States that we've been exceptional in doing and suggest that that's what's responsible for the crime drop that we've experienced. That's actually very interesting to hear because I know a lot when, at least when I hear critics defending, um, you know, let's call them aggressive police tactics like stop and frisk, they always tend to point to a couple of things. And one of those, the biggest things is the 1970s, 80s, 90s crime wave. Um, I always hear people in my parents' generation saying, oh, you should have seen New York in the 70s. You hear that a lot. You know, that's kind of how Giuliani got famous for, for cleaning up New York, so to speak. Um, so it's definitely interesting to hear a counter 
from an academic perspective on how that actually might not be as effective. One of the things I want to return to now, you were talking about the cascading of racial disparity as you progress through the criminal justice system, you know, after someone gets arrested. So we can look at what you said, the disproportionate rates for the stopping and the arresting, right, like the initial phase, but then there's actually the sentencing and conviction phase. Can you elaborate a little bit more on where we see racial disparities within sentencing and conviction? Sure. So what happens is um, the way that I like to think about it is, you know, the criminal justice system can't do that much about the differences in crime rates I talked about earlier, though in some ways it can make it worse by processing people through the system, especially for very trivial things like marijuana possession. And what happens when someone has marijuana conviction on their record is for the rest of their lives, that's going to be something that comes up when they apply for a job, when they apply for housing. So when you have police forces disproportionately looking for that in communities of color, low-income communities of color, that means you're disproportionately harming the life outcomes of people in those communities who got picked up for that very low-level thing. But so anyway, setting aside the disparities in crime rates within the criminal justice system, at every stage what we see is a little bit of racial disparity. First question is, if you've committed what's considered a crime that the criminal justice system deals with, do you even get arrested? Do you get picked up after the arrest? Does the prosecutor decide to dismiss charges against you or not? race matters there. And, you know, it's not a huge difference between blacks or whites uh, and other people of color, but there's some difference. Then the question is, does the prosecutor dismiss charges? And if the prosecutor brings charges against you, do they bring charges that carry a mandatory minimum sentence? Race matters there because that charging decision is going to tie the judge's hands and it's going to threaten you with a very long sentence. The next question is, are you held pre-trial while you're, while you're figuring out your case? Uh, race matters there, and the way that matters is not just by the discretion of um, people that are deciding whether or not you should be detained pre-trial, but whether or not you can afford to post bail. And we know that people of color and African Americans in particular are disproportionately likely to be poor in our country, and so they're less likely to be able to post bail if it's demanded. After the bail question, when extent that the judge has discretion, um, that that becomes relevant because the judge is going to look at you and think, well, is this an upstanding person that messed up once, or is this someone who likely has had a lot of encounters with crime and is going to continue to go on to criminally offend afterwards? Race matters in that decision. If they've held uh, in pretrial detention, and if there's a mandatory sentence that's been imposed, threatened on, uh, against them, they're going to accept a worse plea offer than if they were otherwise in a different situation. And so people of color disproportionately end up accepting worse plea offers and given worse plea offers than whites. Once you're in prison, what kind of interaction do you have with the guards? How often are you going to get written up for not listening to the guards and obeying their orders? Um, we know that race matters there as well, and that disciplinary record in prison is going to be something that determines whether you qualify for earlier release because of good behavior. It's going to potentially delay your parole. Um, so then after you're released, uh, whether, if you have a criminal record, you're going to have a very difficult time 
applying for housing, employment, especially with the discretionary decisions there of whether the, what an employer thinks of you, what a landlord thinks of you, race becomes very relevant again there. People who have criminal records are discriminated against in all kinds of markets that they face afterwards. But if they're black and they have a criminal record, they're especially likely to be discriminated against. So, uh, you know, the punishment is not over when you, when you're done with your sentence of prison, probation, or whatever. It's going to continue to haunt you, that record, for the rest of your life. It's going to make it so that your family is poorer than you would have otherwise been. I want to go back a second to policing, because that seems to be the focus of the protest currently. There's a lot of people, again, talking about the police being racist. And from what I've understood from everything you've said, there appears to be a lot of bias throughout the whole criminal justice system. So I guess my question is, do you think police and police departments are more racist than the other steps in the criminal justice system? Uh, that's a great question. I, you know, I'm not sure if policing is more racist or not. I know that something that people think about is um, the issue of educational level and training with policing, and uh, and um, compared to, for example, the attorneys that are going to be processing your case once you're after you're arrested, police tend to have lower levels of education, and so their calls to um, require police officers to at least have a college degree, um, and and so that that's one issue. Um, but certainly, there are people that uh, you know a college degree doesn't erase bias, and it doesn't make people more aware of the systemic racism in the in the and and or more able necessarily to tackle the problem in the in their workplace. So there have been a number of studies that have been done to reveal the presence of implicit bias um, among regular people and in people working in different fields, including among police officers. And so what some of these studies do is, for example, show pictures to people, um, to, for example, to, to officers and ask them, okay, well, here's a simulated experiment. Um, when you see a picture of someone holding a weapon, we want you to press a button here. And if you see someone who's holding something that's not a weapon, press this other button. And uh, what happens is that when you do that kind of experiment with uh, people that are not police officers, um, researchers have found quite a lot of bias where uh, people will incorrectly identify something as a weapon that's not a weapon. Um, it's held by a person of color in particular, as someone who's African-American. And so there's that misidentification of what an object is in someone's hand because of the assumption of, the, you know, the association of criminality with African-Americans. And when this, these kinds of studies have been done with police officers, what they found is that police officers actually are, tend to be less biased than the general public but they, there is still bias in how they perform these experiments. So they're more likely to more rapidly identify the weapon in the hand of the person who's African-American than when they see it in the hand of a person who's white. So that's just one example. The evidence of bias in, in experiments that have been done, but also in, um, in when you look more systematically at the actual outcome of policing work that's done. That's very interesting. So... If you were to generalize, and I don't know if it's even useful to give any sort of figure, but you know, if we're talking about a majority of Americans, a minority, a large majority, if you were to try and guess the percent of Americans that carry some sort of implicit racial bias, what percent would you say? 
Gosh, that's a great question. I mean, I don't have the number off my the top of my head from these research, the research that I've seen on this, but I would guess that it's something like um, three-quarters of Americans at least have some kind of implicit bias, if not more. Typically, what researchers have shown is that it's a higher percentage among white Americans than among people of color. I have found this to be the case for myself personally, even during times when I've been doing research and writing about implicit bias. So during the time that I wrote this Black Lives Matter report for the sentencing project, I remember I was looking out my window and my neighbor has a um, has a car rental service that um, that's set up in his in his parking spot in the in the in the alley, and so people routinely come and go into that into that um, into his driveway to use that share that car share system, and so. I would never think twice about seeing people walking down my alley, walking into my neighbor's driveway to, to get one of the, these cars. But I remember once seeing a young uh, group, young group of um, young men and young women who were African American, and I stopped what I was doing and just looked to see, well, why, like, why, why are they in my neighbor's yard? What exactly, like, what's, what are they up to? And I realized, like, that's exactly. You know, even though I'm spending all my day thinking about this issue, writing about it, trying to figure out how to solve it, but that's exactly the kind of suspicion that happens when, um, you know, that people don't necessarily catch um, that affects their work. And what researchers have found is that if you, the more you make race very um, salient for people, the more likely you are to help them catch those moments so that they can stop it and do something about it. And so that comes with not just implicit bias training that people would need to undergo, but also with a system of accountability in their work. So if you're a prosecutor or if you're a police officer, with having data on how often are you arresting people, how often are you searching people, what kind of charges are you bringing, and how does that differ by race? You know, people working in the criminal justice system need that kind of feedback and accountability for their work to be able to eradicate um, the bias that they would otherwise inevitably produce. That's very difficult for anyone living in our society to not, um, to not create in their work. Speaking of mechanisms uh, to prevent that kind of bias, as you've talked about, have you come across examples of police departments improving their criminal justice? Um, anything that we can point to as far as saying this is a route that we should try and emulate? Sure. Um, so the first thing I would say is when it comes to policing and when it comes to criminal justice more broadly, I think it's important to have two goals in mind. And one of them is to get rid of bias and disparities. But the other goal is to just scale the whole thing back. So within the criminal justice system and sentencing, that means getting rid of prison sentencing disparities, but also making it so that far fewer people overall, black, white, Latino, everything, are going to prison and are staying there for a shorter period of time. That, those two things need to be done at the same time. Because sometimes I think what happens is when we look at very high-profile cases, where someone seems to have gotten away with something, especially if they're white and privileged, I think it's a natural instinct to say, that's not fair that they got that deal. What we want to do is make it so that everyone gets the fair and just outcome, not, not everyone going to the opposite extreme and making sure that the privileged white people that are getting processed are treated like everybody else, but let's treat everybody else with what is often a fair outcome that the privileged white people are getting in the system. Murray Gottschalk, who's a Pennsylvania, University of Pennsylvania political science professor, has made the argument that 
Even the way we treat white people in this country is too harsh. If we only had white people in prison in the United States, we would still have a mass incarceration problem. So we need to tackle the disparities and bring down contact, police contact and incarceration overall for everyone. I, I put out this Black Lives Matter report with the sentencing project in 2015, and that was after Michael Brown was killed by the officer in, in Ferguson. And the goal there was to encourage people to encourage them to think more broadly about how this happens in the criminal justice system as well. You know, a lot of people are harmed with their policing encounters, um, even if they're not physically hurt, right? Even if it's just the knowing that a person with a weapon pulled you over that didn't need to pull you over, just that possible threat of force that might be used against you is something that is haunting. And that's not, that's not trivial. That's significant. And similarly, when you go through different stages of the criminal justice process, levels of freedom are taken away from you. And sometimes that can be fatal. Like, for example, right now during the pandemic, many of us who can are working from home. There's been hardly any meaningful steps to, to depopulate prisons during the pandemic, even though most prisons way over capacity. These are places where the virus in some places has been spreading rapidly, and it, it's unnecessarily putting people's lives in, at risk to keep them in these institutions. Sandra Bland's suicide, um, Khalif Browder's suicide after he was released from uh, being held for three years on Rikers Island at a substantial portion of that time in solitary confinement. Those are the most extreme ways that we can think about the way uh, the violence that's done to people as a result of their contact with the system, people who shouldn't have had contact with the system at all. But there is, I think, also a, a broader issue, a broader prevalence of harm that's done to people, even some people who have certainly committed crimes, some people who need to be held accountable for their crime in some kind of way. But especially during this period of the pandemic, it's really underscored for me how little willingness there is to act on the understanding that we have way too many people in the criminal justice system that we don't need to have there. I think that's all the time we have for today. Nazgul, I really appreciate your expertise, you coming on here and teaching us so much about the nuances of the criminal justice system. I always ask my guests before they leave, you know, this podcast is about trying to have conversations and learning from one another. If you were to leave our audience with one thing to think about, one thing to talk about, what would you have them discuss? I think that the thing that I would encourage people to think about is uh, when it comes to incarceration in particular and addressing the problem of mass incarceration, for people to realize that whenever they hear someone talk about reducing incarceration for nonviolent drug offenses, that, that that's not going to be enough to ending mass incarceration. Because right now, half of the people that are in prison that are serving sentences of a year or longer in prison are there for a violent offense. So that includes crimes like assault, robbery, and more serious crimes like rape and murder. So if we want to end mass incarceration in the United States, and I think of that as a goal that's related to the policing reform and defunding discussions that we're having, if we want to end mass incarceration, what we really need to do is move beyond thinking about ending the drug war to also think about why is it that we have these excessive prison sentences for violent crimes when we have so many people serving such very long prison sentences, shorter sentences for nonviolent offenses seem not so bad, arrests and dismissals for very minor things seem not so bad, 
but all of these forms of contact and time within the within carceral settings are are damaging for people and need to be addressed. Thank you so much for your thoughts, Nazgul. For listeners interested in more of Nazgul's research or the efforts to reduce our prison population, you can find out more at sentencingproject.org.